Welcome to the Brown Executive Master in Cybersecurity podcast series. Cyber war sounds more like a video game than a real danger. Yet according to Deborah Hurley, a Brown Executive Master in Cybersecurity faculty member and fellow at Harvard, cyber war looms as one of the greatest humanitarian threats. In this podcast, Deborah calls for a non-armament accord for cyberspace, without which she says we're five minutes to midnight. She'll explain the need to protect cyberspace to avoid large-scale civilian disruption, just as we have developed international treaties in the conduct of war to safeguard space and the Antarctic. But are we really this close to Armageddon? And how will a non-armament accord prevent this catastrophic outcome? Yes, we are that close. And in fact, in yesterday's news, they were talking about ISIS's capacity for cyber war because you have a distributed expertise and the ability for asymmetric warfare. So I've been leading this initiative for about 18 months to create a non-armament accord for cyberspace. So uh, the idea of that is a quite concrete initiative. There are some other international initiatives going on. They're largely uh, just beginning uh, since I've started this one, and they're centered largely mostly around definitions, you know, beginning the definition process. So my thesis is that there's a legitimate counterpoint to all the bellicose rhetoric that's happening with regard to cyber war, both offensive and defensive. And that's been happening uh, increasingly by various players and most dangerously by China and the United States. Uh, and so the idea of cyber warfare, any warfare, is you want to engender dread, you want to break the will of the population, you want to disrupt economic and social activity. So that's the purpose of cyber war in itself as well, just like any other warfare. And it could either be something which would be a, a catastrophic event, take down the entire power grid, or you could easily do something where you create uh, degradations in service, you know, that happen uh, on and off or unpredictably and so forth, and this can cause a lot of economic harm. So significant resources have already been poured into offensive and defensive cyber warfare by China and the United States and many, many other countries. And the United States, in my view, has played a particularly dangerous game here since it's heavily dependent on information technologies. Much American critical infrastructure is in private hands, which is a bit unusual, and technical expertise is widely distributed around the globe. So in thinking about this problem, I took the best tradition of the internet, which is about disintermediation is one of the hallmarks of the internet. So how do we disintermediate cyber war? So that led me, after doing some research, to come up with these a tradition of non-armament treaties by which nations have agreed that certain vital resources are the common heritage of humanity and will be used for peaceful and scientific purposes. And there are a good number, actually, of these armament, are non-armament accords. Uh, people will be aware of some of them, but the two most well-known are the Antarctic Treaty and the Outer Space Treaty. And both the Antarctic Treaty and the, Cyber, uh, the Outer Space Treaty were negotiated and adopted at the height of the Cold War. So while times today are certainly fraught, I don't think we can argue that it was any less fraught, and probably more fraught, in the era in the late 50s and early 60s when they negotiated and adopted the Antarctic Treaty and the Outer Space Treaty. So some at the time, again, said it was impractical, impossible, given the geopolitics of the time, but the proponents there persevered and prevailed. And these treaties shaped not only the specific specific zones they covered, but then had uh, amplifying effects or, or effects beyond the specific topics that they covered. In addition, one of the other aspects of cyberspace that absolutely has to be taken into account is that much of cyberspace, as I already mentioned, is in private hands. 
So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the private sector piece of cyberspace? So there's a, there are a number, again, a number of examples in international agreements. Uh, one particular example I'll mention is the Chemical Weapons Convention. So that convention was negotiated and adopted in the late 80s into the early 90s. And I, although that was not my field, I watched it with considerable interest at that time Many people weren't paying attention to that issue, but one of the things the Chemical Weapons Convention negotiations and the actual final treaty had to address was and include was the private sector because legitimately the private sector ha holds for industrial purposes and many other purposes many of the chemicals or chemical precursors that can also be used for chemical weapons. So that provides an interesting model of how to deal with the private sector there. And so we see again in this Chemical Weapons Convention completed in the early 90s for most of the world's population and many government officials, again, completely unaware of it, sat quietly on the shelf. But a few years ago when uh, chemical weapons were uh, found in Syria, it provided an excellent mechanism by which they could pull it off the shelf and then use that to deal with that in a peaceful way, in a quick way, uh, so you had something ready to go. So when thoughts of uh, international agreements come up, People sometimes quail, or many people quail, at the idea of the large bureaucracy that will be created by that. But there's no need for a cumbersome bureaucracy. And again, other earlier treaties provide examples of that. And I'll give the example of the Antarctic Treaty. There was, it was adopted in the early 1960s. There was no secretariat or any kind of support for the Antarctic Treaty between the early 1960s and 2004. The mechanism that the signatory governments used was an annual meeting, and different countries would host it each year. Delegates would come from the member countries, and they would, on the agenda, then hash out any issues that they had. And so that was the mechanism that they used. Finally, in 2004, they decided that they would set up a small secretariat. It is in Buenos Aires, and it's eight people. So really just a dust mode in international uh, bureaucracy or international time. Another interesting example, and there are many others uh, international, in international treaty making, is the International Telecommunications Union. That is the oldest international organization. It was founded in the 1860s, uh, back at the time of the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln. And the reason the ITU was founded was to address this new burgeoning technology, the telegraph system. So again, telegraphs were spreading all over the world. There had to be interoperability. They had to function. People couldn't just turn them off and so forth uh, because the economies were becoming increasingly dependent on them. So a group got together. The International Telecommunications Union was formed uh, and has existed to this day. And again, at that time, much of the telegraph system was in private hands. So the ITU, very unusually for an international organization, has included the private sector in its membership. Uh, I wanted to identify briefly some of the issues that we'll be addressing through this process of uh, negotiating and adopting a cyberspace non-armament accord. And we've begun it as a track two or pugwash process, a multi-stakeholder process, certainly. That's again one of the hallmarks of cyberspace, so there are included non-state actors, governments, civil society, the private sector, and so forth, the full range of stakeholders in cyberspace. Uh, there are a number of issues to be addressed. Uh, those include definitions of the threat, the activities of various actors, cyber defense, uh, peace building and creating the conditions for peace, practical challenges that governments face regarding offensive and defensive cyber war, the development and vigorous use of criminal law in cyberspace, uh, which has not been done sufficiently yet, a recognition of cyberspace as the common heritage of humanity, 
taking into account other efforts. As I mentioned, they're largely, uh, they're initiating, they're really starting, and they're largely definitional at this point, um, and use of other treaty precedents and models uh, for cyberspace. So similar to those who gave life to the Antarctic Treaty and the Outer Space Treaty, in my view, it is vital to embrace the audacious vision of cyberspace as a zone dedicated to peace and human advancement. The fruits of the Information Society offer some of the best promise and opportunity for the future. Information communications technologies are not only ends in themselves, but rather should and I believe must be used in the service of humanity. So an international accord would disintermediate burgeoning cyber war policymaking and industry. It would recognize cyberspace as the common heritage of humanity. It would dedicate it for peace and science in the aim of human advancement. And it would ensure that ongoing development and use of cyberspace will be a peaceful en endeavor. This is a mechanism to avoid disputes and discord. And it will encourage international cooperation and regulate international relations with respect to the pervasive, ubiquitous information environment. So thank you for that excellent explanation. One question. Great to know these treaties are doable. It will take years to finalize. What should companies and governments do in the meantime to protect themselves? Right. I have two answers to that question. Uh, it will take some years. These things are, you know, Rome is not built in a day. These international agreements are not done, uh, you know, in a matter of a couple of months. But I will remark that um, when the ground is laid and the, you know, fertile bed is sown and the political will is there also, these things are able to move along quite quickly. And I'll give two examples. One, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was um, adopted in 1948. It was begun in 1946. So two years in international time is very, very fast. It's about 10 minutes. And so again, rising from the ashes of World War II, like a phoenix, was this Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which then was the bedrock for the entire canon of international human rights agreements that we have today. Similarly, I drafted, negotiated, and adopted the guidelines for the security of information systems with 25 governments back in 91, 92, and we accomplished that in less than two years as well. So there, it is very doable. Things can move along with dispatch. In terms of what companies and governments should do, the state of security information systems overall is absolutely deplorable. Uh, this incentive structure is nascent, and there's a great deal that should be done and can be done to improve security of information systems. And I would suggest we make that the subject of a next podcast. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information on future podcasts, program news, and upcoming events, please visit brown.edu slash cybersecurity.